Welcome to Ask an Austrian, episode six. Um, my name is Per Byland. I'm an associate professor of entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University. I'm also a senior fellow with the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. Um, we have a bunch of questions here, and I'm going to start with those that are particularly uh, focusing on economics. And then and there are some uh, questions that are uh, stressing more libertarian theory, uh, which is a different thing. So I'll keep those to the end if we have time. So the first question is from Sachin Paddle. Uh, why do Austrians believe that consumption doesn't help economy to grow? Suppose that more TVs are consumed, then retail shopkeeper of TVs will give more orders of TV to wholesaler. That wholesaler will give more orders to manufacturer. And by this logic, consumption does help the economy to grow. So what's the fault of this line of thinking? Well, the, it's, the fault is that you're reversing time, saying that because someone wants to buy something, uh, you will produce more of it. Uh, and that's not actually true. Uh, what we see in the economy and the way action also works is that we produce something before we consume it. So it's, it's in a sense, it's says law that we have to produce in order to consume. Um, and it's also entrepreneurship in the marketplace. And what I mean by that is that just because a lot of people are buying TVs of a certain kind today does not mean uh, that they will buy the same type of TV tomorrow. So even if you sell out completely today, that does not mean that the, man the manufacturer of that type of screen, for instance, should produce more because that could be uh, a year or two out before those screens are actually produced. And at that point, who knows if um, if anyone wants to buy that type of TV anymore. So the problem here is simply that the future is always uncertain. And you can't take the present as a reason for doing something in the future. It necessarily depends on your judgment and your bearing of that uncertainty as an entrepreneur. And of course, if, if there's only one type of television, let's uh, use this as an example, uh, and you would sell out suddenly because people want a lot of television sets. <clears throat> then this does not also not mean even if if no other uh, entrepreneur can or is expected to produce better or other types of television sets uh, to produce and, and offer for sale tomorrow or in the month, it still doesn't mean that you can just take this as a signal and start producing more television sets of the same kind because it could be that people who bought a television today will not buy a new television tomorrow or a year from now. Um, so if we take a step back then and, and take this into a, a real marketplace where there are low barriers to entry or even better, no barriers to entry, especially no artificial ones, it means that if you are this TV salesman uh, selling television sets and you sell out today, you will probably place an order for more TV sets to have already tomorrow. But it, does, it is not, for that uh, reason, a signal for the whole production chain to produce television sets that can be ready in a month or in a year. That's not the same thing. You will have to place orders for that next month uh, based on what you think that people will buy in that next month. It's not necessarily what they bought today or what, what they bought yesterday. So uh, the economy and any action needs to be future-oriented. And it is always future-oriented. Uh, you have plenty of failed entrepreneurs, however, uh, who respond to signals and it, it works in an economic model and it's easy to be uh, fooled by uh, th this type of model because there's no time involved. So you say, oh, you just 
uh, move the supply curve a little bit and in increase supply because there was demand. Well, that's not really what happens. What happens is that entrepreneurs produce supply of certain very specific goods, offer them for sale, and then the consumer is sovereign in deciding whether or not to buy and how much to buy of it at that price. But what happens the next time period, that is that those who were in production of goods but were not ready to sell them yet, they will offer theirs. So just because you sold uh, what you produced this time period doesn't mean that you can sell anything at all next time period. So you have to focus on and, and aim for that future value. Uh, so so the, the consumption drives uh, the economy in the very short term, people can ramp up production very quickly to some extent in order to just satisfy the, the immediate demand. But in the little, just a little bit longer time period, that's not how it works. And it will be uh, disrupted and undercut uh, by other entrepreneurs producing other things or, other, or, or better things. Uh, so consumption is, is a, it's a result of or an effect of production. Production precedes consumption. All right, we have another question by Clay Seal. Uh, in our current inflationary economy, we see cost of living wage increases, even if they are not necessarily reflective of the increases uh, in cost of living. In a deflationary economy, do you think there would be cost of living decreases? So if I uh, Assume that what you mean by cost of living is such things as rent and food prices and, and things like that. Uh, then, yes, we would see that cost fall in terms of money prices, right? So, um, in a deflationary economy, the purchasing power of the currency increases in time. Uh, and what that means is that the longer you have a dollar, say, in your pocket, the more that dollar will be able to buy in, in, in the the, and the longer that you wait into the future, the more that dollar will buy. Uh, what that means is that, yeah, of course, your cost is going down in terms of dollars. Um, uh, will your wage fall, which is probably be the uh, the more interesting question? It might fall uh, as a metric. Um, I think employers would want to. Uh, cut your wage, perhaps. But the thing is that when you start a company, and this goes back to the issue really in the, in the previous question, that when you start a business, you hire people based on and, and pay them based on the value you think that they will uh, be able to contribute to the business. And that is based in turn on uh, the, the expected demand, what the entrepreneur think thinks that he will be able to sell and at what prices and in what volumes. And then that income in money, money prices, uh, will determine how much he or she will pay for your services in the business. Does that mean that that um, your wage will decrease just because the purchasing power of money uh, increases? Not necessarily. It depends on your contract, of course. Uh, I don't think that in a certain position in a business, uh, your wage will go down. I mean, it's a matter of negotiation, of course. It could be the case that businesses that pay too much uh, will be in trouble, but that's the case also in an inflationary economy, right? That uh, that um, if you pay too much, you can't really survive in competition with other businesses. So I don't think that is an actual um, issue uh, about uh, deflation 
when you think about how businesses actually operate. Uh, what you might see is um, that I can, or at least we can theorize that that some employers might wait to hire, but that's probably a good thing too because they need to make sure that they can cover the cost. Of course, since they are looking for and aiming for value in the future uh, and covering the cost right now based off of that value, I, I don't think that is an actual issue. Um, but of course, some businesses will go under and some businesses will go under because they have too high costs and then you will try to find another job. But um, I, I don't think it's the, the same mechanism and the cost of living increases. I mean, that's, that's really based on, uh, well, partly the government and partly because wage earners um, push for it and require it and employers overall, uh, they... Um, they approve of it because they get higher revenue as well. Uh, it, I don't think any wage earners would push for lowering wages. And I don't think an employer that starts lowering their, the wages they pay will uh, keep a lot of their, especially not the key employees, right? They, they would, they would rather leave the business and find jobs elsewhere. And I, I think in a, in a deflationary economy, there would be plenty of jobs as well. All right. We have another question by Dustin, Branicki, how do we imagine wages and prices in a deflationary economy or free market? Would we all make 10 cents a week and buy, be able to buy all the things we need? Would we have contracts with our employer where they would lower our wages every few years to keep up with deflation? How should we envision this aspect of a free market? Well, I think I basically answered that question already. I don't think that wages would fall uh, automatically in the same sense as wages go up now with inflation. I mean, assuming they do, but but over time they do. Um, rather, uh, it, it's a it's a matter of value creation, and who knows whether businesses will would stay alive longer or shorter. But they would probably need to be more innovative to create more value and and get more. Uh, more revenue for what they produce. Um, Black Capo or Capo, uh, what is the Austrian viewpoint on democratic socialism? I don't think there is an Austrian viewpoint on democratic socialism because Austrian economics is a value free science uh, and democratic socialism is either a uh, ideological movement or a party or policy or something like that. So there is no Austrian viewpoint on that ideology. Those are completely separate. Uh, I, I think Austrian economists would be really eager to educate a, a bunch of democratic socialists on economics, however, but that's a different matter. Uh, Giovanni Martello, uh, could you provide a short list of reading materials that will help an individual learn and apply the systems of Austrian economics to their own lives and be able to lead through example to others. Economics in one lesson comes to mind. Uh, that's Hazlitt's classic. And it's one on most lists, but what else could we focus on to get the most easily understood lessons done first? Uh, there are so many resources that I would love to see specifics drilled into and, and really help to provide ammunition when economics is being discussed. Well, that's uh, an interesting question for me uh, because I have very recently published this book, uh, How to Think About the Economy, which is supposed to be uh, sort of an 
a, a better entry point than economics in one lesson because it is uh, more to the point, more, I wouldn't say necessarily easier to read, but the same level. Um, and it is uh, much shorter. It's less than half as long and it covers all of economics. So it gives you an, an economic intuition or economic literacy in general, whereas economics in one lesson is truly one lesson. It's the lesson of trade-offs and opportunity costs. Uh, so that would be a good entry point. And I think the Mises Institute would also claim that that's, that's the go-to nowadays. Um, it's not super practical. It's it's practical in the sense that you learn how to think about the economy, which of course would help you in everyday lives. Um, uh, what other books are there? There are a bunch of books on, on financing and investing, like the Tao of Capital is one. Uh, there are no really hands-on manuals or guides or how-to books in, in Austrian economics, which is a, a problem, I think. Um, there should definitely be more in terms of what should you do in your business when there's inflation or where do you invest when there's inflation and things like that. I mean, there, there are some some such things, no, no books as far as I know, or at least what I can think of right now. Um, there are some articles, so you can search on those topics and, and get get articles on those things. I would also look into different podcasts, uh, depending on, on the guests, uh, like the Economics for Business podcast, for instance, if you're interested in, in, in running or, or doing business. Um, so, so those sort of things. So we have a question from Chris Bennett. Here's a question on free trade. Manufacturing country A uses slave labor, inhumane working conditions, and pollutes heavily en route to producing cheap products. Should libertarian country B import goods freely from country A? Well, this is a, a question on on a policy and a libertarianism rather than uh, on Austrian economics. Um, there's a, a similar question from Andrew Riley. Uh, he says there is. Is there any moral limit on free trade? Is there any point at which another country or trading partner violates libertarian principles so egregiously that you cut off relations? Or is there no line at all? Buying oil from ISIS is fine, coal from, from uh, North Korea, Mercedes cars from the Nazis, and so on. Um, let's answer this and this, then move on a little bit to the economics. Um, I think in, from, from an economics point of view, we have to realize that who determines what should be sold and what can be sold. Uh, it's not, first of all, it's not countries. Uh, it's not producers either. It is consumers. So uh, the morality of it, economics is, of course, value-free. So the economics will not tell you whether it's moral or, or just or anything like that. Economics will tell you whether uh, what would happen in a certain type of world. Uh, so... If consumers are okay with it, with slave labor and whatever the examples were, then consumers would buy those products. Um, so it's a matter of informing consumers of how the goods are made, in what sense they are made, and what the implications are. And and that that responsibility in a free market, since there are no government agencies, falls on consumer organizations other consumers and also competitors. So if you have the example here with two countries, with one country not giving a damn about anything, basically, uh, slave labor and, and po pollution and, and whatnot else, and the other country uh, producers do, 
Well, first of all, I have to assume that the, the, the businesses in country B where they care about these things, they care about these things because their customers care about those things. So it's, it's, a, it's well worth investing in those little costlier, I, I, I suppose, uh, lines of production simply because consumers are willing to pay for it, which means another country would not be able to sell those goods, even if they are cheaper. They have to be a lot cheaper in order to at all get a market share. And of course, what the, the businesses in country B uh, could do is simply uh, inform consumers overall that country A, those those different companies are are using slave labor and 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 pollution and and those sort of things. So it's immoral or or just as an as information service or what have you, and then see what what people will do. But it's it's really up to consumers. So producers uh, they might try to hide their practices. Um, but that only works for a little while, especially in a free market. It would not work very long. Um, and, and then it really comes down to do consumers uh, accept it or not. And of course, given the price. Uh, so if something is free, then a lot of people would accept all kinds of egregious practices. Um, but they might also want to pay a little bit to avoid those things to, to, uh, uh, for moral reasons. Uh, a question from Joshua Byers. Assuming it doesn't, why does protectionism not benefit the protected nation's industrial base? Well, I mean, I don't have to assume it doesn't because it doesn't, but it depends on, on how you look at it. The nation's industrial base, is that only those companies producing right now or is it production in the longer term? And that could longer term could just be five, 10, 20 years, whatever. Um, and does it include also those who would enter and 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 compete with uh, the incumbents? Because that changes the question. So protectionism, uh, that protection benefits uh, the incumbents, that is the producers who are already producing. And if, if you would lift those protections, then what would happen presumably is that the incumbents would lose out and they would have no chance of, of uh, competing, meaning they are less efficient, they are more costly, they are produce lower quality, whatever it may, might be. Therefore, you add a burden on everybody else so that you can protect those who are, well, the producers that consumers would not choose. Um, this protectionism benefits they th these companies, at least in the short term, but the problem is that they will also not innovate because there would be no pressure on them to innovate. And there would probably be very little uh, of new entries in that market, even domestically, simply because it's protected. And these, these basically inefficient producers would be propped up. So the, the real uh, uh, loser, both in the short and the long term, of course, is, is the consumer who gets a higher priced, higher cost goods at lower quality and cannot get those, those better goods and, and therefore cannot consume as much as they otherwise would be able to. Let's see, a question from Jim Higginbottom. If there's no intellectual property loss, why would pharmaceutical companies do expensive research and development? 
Okay, so touching a little bit on law. Um, but law, uh, it's really the framework within business take place. Uh, and and I think there are some a lot of confusion around intellectual property laws. Uh, first of all, I would say, which is often overlooked, is that intellectual property does not actually protect the innovation. It protects the invention. So it, it protects the idea, uh, whether or not you're able to use it. Innovation is, is taking an idea and bringing it to market, making it valuable to you and to consumers. So that part is, is not included. In fact, it's actually prohibited more or less. So whoever has the idea for something needs to also innovate it and make it useful for consumers, which is not very often the case actually in, in the marketplace. So in, in a sense, what, what uh, these laws are saying is that, well, if you uh, come up with some idea and you register it with the government, you are the only one who can figure out how to make a buck from it. Which means, of course, the consumers lose a lot. And we, that we will probably have much less innovation, not necessarily invention. Um, and therefore, there will be less value overall for consumers. And that's not, not a good thing. But in terms of pharmaceutical companies, uh, the question is, is, is posed in such a way that you have to do, or the assumption is anyway, it presumes that pharmaceutical companies, they have to produce these drugs which are good for us, but they take so much investment and it's easy to, to reverse engineer and therefore no one would make these investments. Well, this is not necessarily true. So the intellectual property laws, they give whoever gets the patent and, and whatnot else uh, a privilege at the expense of anybody else, uh, which means they're they're protected which also means, of course, that this is really a subsidy towards patentable ideas over non-patentable ideas. So we get an overinvestment in what could potentially be patentable. And we also get uh, patent applications for all kinds of nonsense uh, that no one expects to make any money off of. But in case someone does at some point, then at least we have a patent and we can sue their asses. Uh, so this, this creates a distortion uh, to begin with. Uh, and and it also means that a lot of pharmaceutical companies invest a lot of money into um, uh, into research and development to extend patents they already have. Uh, so there, there are plenty of examples of drugs that become these uh, uh, high-selling drugs with lots of revenue. And as the patent uh, begins to get close to expiration, um, they come up with a slightly changed uh, version of the same drug. So they change the molecule just a minor bit. So they get basically the same, um, the same uh, uh, properties, the same effects. Maybe it's a little improved, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and they get a patent for this because no one else can because it builds off of the patent they already have, which extends their monopoly on this drug and especially the new vari variation uh, for however many years. Um, this type of, of investment is made only to milk the system, to exploit the system, to get a monopoly of this, this really um, highly demanded, apparently, uh, drug that uh, this company managed to produce once. Uh, and so there's a lot of waste in the system when you're, when you're 
uh, investing a lot of research and development for the sake of patents rather than for the sake of a, a working um, type of type of drug. And an example of this is uh, how pharmaceutical companies not only are in cahoots with government, but also lobby government pretty hardly, I mean, with, with a lot of money, uh, trying to uh, get rid of vitamins and minerals. And what I mean by that is that if you, you can look it up online, um, there have been plenty of attempts by pharmaceutical companies and their lobbying lobbyists to make vitamin C and just general vitamins prescription drugs. So you have would have to go to your doctor and get a prescription in order to buy vitamin C. Now, why would they want to do this? Why would they waste money on this instead of research and development to produce drugs? Well, because people, they cure themselves or they, they maintain their immune system so that they don't get sick by taking vitamins. If you could stop those vitamins, there would be a greater market for the patented drugs where there's also no competition. So um, vitamins and minerals over the counter are a threat to pharmaceutical companies trying to sell really expensive drugs. Therefore, they try to stop them using the government. That's also, it, it's not hard to argue that this is wasteful uh, practices, right? So now, considering all of these things, we hardly even have to talk about um, the very expensive research they do because we already know that it's wasteful, it's over investment. Uh, we know that um, they're using a lot of the money that they make to just extending patents and getting rid of over-the-counter things and, and, and stuff like that. But the thing is also that we're getting drugs that we probably shouldn't get. And what I mean by that is that they're investing a lot of money into producing things that are patentable and that they can then milk for 10, 15, 20, whatever years uh, and make a lot of money off of that. Whereas consumers might actually benefit much, much, much more had they invested in and and found effective treatments that are more low-hanging fruits. So they're, they're going after um, the really advanced, hard-to-get things that do not uh, violate an existing patent so that they can get a monopoly right uh, through the patent. But they do not go after actually curing diseases, which would make them money, but probably not as much if they strike gold and find this one thing that will, will cover all their costs, right? So what I think we're seeing here is that, first of all, we're seeing an attack on over-the-counter just, just uh, vitamins and things like that. We're not seeing any investments in low-hanging fruit type of treatments uh, and things that uh, you cannot overcharge. Uh, so there's basically nothing going on there. And then you're seeing a lot of extra investments in, pr in producing drugs that are patentable. So there's a, a huge distortion throughout the system. So that's why I would be uh, opposed to it. I mean, both economically speaking, it makes no sense whatsoever. And of course, as a libertarian, it's also causing disruptions um, in the economy so that certain businesses can, can make a lot of money. That also doesn't make any sense. All right, the question from Adam. In a truly free market economy, would we see the ups and downs in the stock market? 
or the market in general that we have been seeing in the last 100 plus years. Well, I mean, would there be ups and downs? Certainly, because um, the stock market, well, let's let's roll back a step because this is a, actually a, a core issue because um, at, at one point Mises was pushed to answer what is the one thing that distinguishes a market economy from, from a socialist economy? And he didn't want to answer, but when he finally did, he said that the existence of a stock market. Um, but that doesn't mean that just having a stock market, no matter how it works, uh, makes the economy a, a market economy. What I think he meant was that if you have an actual valuation of businesses as bundles of the means of production, you actually have a pricing mechanism for these really high order uh uh, production goods, which means then that you have an economy that can rationally plan, uh, whether it's precise or not, doesn't really matter. But uh, but just because you have this valuation. Now, a stock market today, in it, most trades happen algorithmically. So they're not actual valuations. They are instead trades made instantaneously based on sort of a pattern search so say a, a stock has been has been flat for a while um, and then it goes up, goes down, goes up and there's flat and then the plateau again, then the algorithm might say, oh, this, we've seen this before, so now it's going to go up, so buy. And of course, uh, the algorithms, many of them, they look for the same patterns or they use the same software or whatever. So they all buy and then of course the price goes up because they all buy. That's not a valuation of the business. So all of, a lot of these fluctuations that we see, this very quick ups and downs that I think Adam is, is going after here, we would probably not see those. So trading would probably be much slower had we had a stock market that actually did valuation. And it's, it's sort of ironic, I think, that uh, famous investors like Warren Buffett um, he's famous for being a so-called value investor. So he looks at a business, how sound it is, its ideas, its positioning, what, whatever, all those things. And then he says, oh, this business will make profit or this business will not. And based off of that, he, he makes decisions uh, to buy that stock or buy the company and control it. Right? That's not how most people buy, uh, buy stocks. Instead, they rely on day trading or algorithms or, well, just emotions. Uh, so value investing is sort of a special thing. To an Austrian, it, 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 it's just investing. Investing is for value. So it, uh, it, it doesn't make any sense to call it something special just because you're looking at the actual value of things because uh, that's the way it should be. Um, so in a sense, there, there's too much gambling in the stock market today. Uh, will that disappear, though, in a free market? Because that's basically what Adam is asking. I don't think we can say that it would disappear. There would definitely be day traders and there would be arbitragers in sort of a Kersnerian fashion that would uh, try to find highs and lows and, and make money off of the difference. Um, whether they can actually make money in the long term, who knows? But some of them might be lucky. Um, I don't think that would be as uh, pervasive. There wouldn't be as many such trades uh, simply because you can't expect 
uh, the stock market to go up in the long haul or that there's so much movement either. So I, if I would guess, and this is just pure speculation, uh, there would be uh, less volatility on a stock market in 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 a, in a perfectly free market than it is in a regulated market, and that makes sense. Also, looking at the impact of regulations, right, it makes makes things really uh, static until it breaks, rather than having uh, slow moving adjustments over time. Okay, so. Uh, now we're getting to uh, out of the Austrian realm and into a little more uh, ideology and um, non-Austrian stuff. So it's more libertarian philosophy. So I could certainly answer those too. Uh, what would Murray, Murray Rothbard, I think this is Adam too. Uh, what would Murray Rothbard have to say on the topic of doxing? Is it a violation of one's rights? I think I, re I recall having read something somewhere about from Rothbard saying that you do not have property rights to your reputation. So based on that, and that's the only data point I have, uh, I would assume that he would say that it's not a violation of your rights because you don't have a right to what people know about you. You have a right to that information and not not uh, you have a right not to share that information with people, but other people don't have that uh, a duty unless you have contracted with them already. So I don't think that he would say it's a it's a it's a problem, at least not in terms of of uh, the aggression axiom or the, the aggression principle. Okay, moving on. So Phil Padilla, in a stateless society. How would the court system work and what authority would they have to enforce punitive measures? So this is a question that comes up quite a bit uh, in libertarian discussions. Um, how it would work? Well, who knows? There could be, it, it's really up to entrepreneurs and what they figure out and, and how big an integrated society is. It could be that it's just a village-based thing or it could be that it's a, a world-based thing as well. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, but what we can can know, though, if, if we assume a, a stateless society and a free market, uh, then we do know that people would probably have insurance and things like that. So they would insure their rights and they would insure their property uh, and they would get a protection from, from that. Um if you enter a deal with someone, then you'd probably get a, sort of a, a, a stamp of approval or, or a protection for that deal with some third party who would then have a contract with the parties to the contract saying that they have the right to make things right if, if one of them would renege on the contract. Um, within a, a community uh People would not really have a problem if they, and within a, a say, a, the same insurance company or the same protection agency, that would be handled within the production agency. I think if you have different protection agencies uh, with different rules, then any pair of protection agencies would come up with, um, and probably already have contracts on how to handle inter-company uh, client uh, conflicts. So they would probably appoint a court and whatnot else. Um, and of course, the company would have a, a, an agreement with you 
for protecting you. You're paying not only a fine or a premium, uh, say monthly fee or whatever, but they would also expect you to give them the right to take from you if you do something wrong and you're found guilty in in certain courts that they have uh, agreed on using or or what have you. So the enforcement of punitive measures, as as uh, Phil asks here. Uh, yeah, you would already have the contractual rights probably to do so. Um, so the, the only issue would be if someone does not have a, an insurance, does not have a, a, a protection agency representing them and things like that. But that's really the same as today when you don't have anyone to represent you. Um, you would still, I would guess, uh, your protection agency, say a a a beggar or some some homeless guy breaks into your home and steals stuff. Uh, your protection agency hunts him down and finds him. Then they would take the stuff back or make him or her pay pay you back. Um, and I can see that there would be probably be institutions where they offer the service of having you stay there. Uh, and pay off the debt, and you could probably pick some place, say a luxury place where you're paying, uh, where the cost is high, say for for staying in a nice room and and whatnot else, and you work all day and you stay there until you paid off uh, what you owe. Or there could be a, a a cheap one where you therefore pay off what you owe much much sooner, but you you sleep uh, in a big hall with a hundred other guys and. And you don't have a shower or whatever else. So you could offer all those services in order for you to um, pay off what you owe and what what a court has has found that that you do owe. Um, would they have the right to use force? I mean, that really comes down to whether uh, what is the standard in society and what has become sort of a common law kind of uh, system. Um, what is expected of them? Um, would they have the, the right to take back your stuff? Yes, they would. Uh, would they have the right to use violence in doing it, representing you? Probably, uh, especially if this guy resists, they would, they would probably be able to use that sort of force, but that depends on, on, again, it's, it depends on what entrepreneurs are involved and what types of services they offer to people. Let's see, we have a question by Jonathan Gress-Wright. He says, uh, a lot of people are bullish about the current economy, including many libertarians. Are they right or are there reasons to anticipate another crash soon? Okay, so this is, a, uh, he mentions libertarians, but this is really an economics question. Um, from an Austrian economics point of view, there's reason to anticipate a correction. Um, and the reason I say that is because we have seen a lot of money created since, well, basically the 90s, uh, more and more being created uh, to uh, uh, create new bubbles on top of the bubbles that burst, which means all these distortions are creating at the same time overinvestment in the higher order goods and overconsumption, but very little in the middle. So we are going to run out of resources pretty much. Uh, and we are going to see a lot of uh, failures in the economy as a result. When, though, because that's the question uh, that Jonathan has, 
should we anticipate another crash soon? Now, that's a tricky one because we can't really say when this correction will happen. It could be an event that triggers it. So it could be simply that uh, when the Fed now has, has raised the interest rate, maybe that means that suddenly a bunch of businesses start crashing and there's a cascade. So a lot of, 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 of businesses go under and then you have we end, end up in a recession for that reason. Um, and that might lead to a to a correction uh, throughout the economy. It's more likely, I would uh, think and fear, uh, that the government will step in with another stimulus package that is bigger than, well, it's basically the mother of all stimulus packages and try to uh, save the economy. Um, and then you would basically just kick the can down the road uh, if if they're able to to uh, uh, create a bubble big enough. And that's more this it's increasingly unlikely uh, simply because the distortions are so huge. So uh, I would personally think that there's something coming pretty soon, but whether that is 2023 or if it's 2030, uh, I don't know. If I knew, I would bet a lot of money on it. So we have a question by uh, from Dave uh, Benner. Is threatening or risky behavior toward another that does not actually project violence thereupon a violation of the NAP, the non-aggression principle? That is firing a bullet one inch over someone's head, polluting the air in adjacent private property at the risk that it flows through water, air to another's, etc. So this is um, there, there's a, a sort of cop-out answer or a simple answer, and that is, is it a violation of the NAP to not shoot someone? No, not. It's not a violation. Uh, that's pretty obvious. However, if we're talking about law, and if we're talking about uh, what would law in a free society say, then I would think that we could expect, just for historical reasons, that... Um, a risky behavior would be prohibited and would be penalized, uh, even though it does not uh, actually cause harm or might not, uh, and does not violate the NAP. So we see this in the common law system, for instance, where speeding itself doesn't have to be a crime, but reckless driving is a crime because you're exposing others to a, a risk. So in a sense, common law-wise, you wouldn't need speeding science. You wouldn't need a speeding limit because reckless driving that is speeding way too too much or driving really, really fast when others are around and can be hurt, that would be reckless driving and would be uh, prohibited. Uh, but of course, that means also that if you drive really fast on an empty road, go for it. Right? That doesn't, doesn't harm anyone. But this is an an implementation of of a a law that is based on the NAP and all kinds of cultural uh, things. Uh, so this is a little bit different question, but it's it's not a violation of of the non-aggression principle to to shoot in someone's direction. It's a violation of the NAP to shoot them. All right, another question by uh, Edward Shivarov. Uh, what would be the most simple way to explain the transition to a libertarian anarchist society from society we are in today? What needs to be done before? What needs to be done during the transition? 
Well, that depends on what kind of transition we're talking about. We had a question before about uh, how soon to expect the crash. If it is a crash, how do we transition to libertarian anarchist society? Or can we somehow control the process? Because those, those would be different uh, processes and we need to prepare in different ways for those things, of course. Uh, for me personally, um, I think that the, the best transition is uh, what mutualists and uh, agorists talk about, basically creating new institutions within the shell of the old. So by interacting with other people, by trading, say, in, in the black market or gray market, and finding ways to, and, and standards for how to solve conflicts, we create new institutions. They might be informal, uh, at least in the beginning, but they might also grow and people might respect them because they enter them willingly and voluntarily. Uh, so we have conflict resolution that happens uh, in the way that people wish to see conflict revolution. So they would be much more just system. And there would also, of course, be, be no, no government involved, uh, no hierarchy and, and things like that. Which means that the more you do of this sort of thing, basically counter economics, uh, the better prepared we are, socially speaking, for a crash or a transition. But we're also pushing the transition along because we are not only creating new institutions that are ready to take the place of the old ones when they crumble and, uh, and implode, but we're also challenging them and undermining their, um, uh, their legitimacy because we are solving problems in a, in a different way and voluntarily, and people see that this is good. Uh, so it's, uh, in, in a sense, a, a crash would be terrible. It would be a fast way. It would probably not end up uh, in a free society as a result of a crash. But the more prepared we are, which means in practice, not in theory, um, but the more we have already practiced uh, voluntary interaction, a voluntary uh, conflict revolution, uh, resolution, sorry, uh, and and found ways of organizing and coordinating uh, with others. And there are plenty of things that you can do, say in, through an HOA. That's definitely not the, the best way of doing things. But in a neighborhood, you might have a neighborhood watch and things like that. You might have a neighborhood club. Uh, you might have a, a little council that uh, takes care of, say, the the neighborhood park or or there may might be a common area or what have you those sort of things are super important for the transition and of course in the free society as well so the more we are engaged in and, and involved in such things and the more we lead those things and make them happen um, the easier it is would it, it would be to not only survive and control the transition to make sure it actually goes the right way, which is to a free society and not to, say, fascism or totalitarianism. It would also be a, a way of, of, of nudging society locally and at higher levels too uh, towards freedom. And it would be, I think, would, would, would create a local resilience against nonsense that comes from, well, who knows, the UN or the feds or whatever. Okay, so another question. This is going to be the last one because we're running out of time. Uh, from uh, Matt Berry. Is there a good proposal by free market thinkers to slowly wean those dependent on social welfare in the U.S. down to zero dependence? And if, asked, if there is, what is, does that plan look like? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't seen any such programs or anything like that, but I, I know that a lot of people are involved in in helping people voluntarily. Um, and I think uh, helping people to get jobs is probably the best thing you can do. So if you start a business and hire people who are dependent on, on all kinds of uh, government handouts, uh, I mean, that's a double win, right? Because you 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 give this person a source of income and a way to grow and become depend, independent, and you take them out of, of the government's realm. Um, and, of course, the government is still going to spend that money, but at least they are not dependent on that government handout anymore. And they grow as people, too, because they realize that they can actually make a difference. They can actually contribute. They can actually create value, and they're worth something. Uh, so I, to me, it, it, starting businesses, hiring people and organizing things, even if it's not through a business, is, is, a, is an important way of doing it. It's, it's not a plan for society overall, but it's a way of, of getting people out of dependence and also even just consulting them on how to start their own local businesses, start a new store, organize events, whatever it might be, all those things to just show people that they can individually and together. I think that is uh, super important. All right, that's all we have time for. So thank you very much. I'd be happy to answer other questions. So just find me online and email me or bug me on Twitter or something like that. Uh, that would be a lot of fun. Talk to you later.